All right, I would tell you to turn somewhere, but I don't know that we'll actually have to tonight. Remember some things. I'm not trying to teach you a new language uh, at all. It's not interesting you learning these words at all. But I am trying to show you that the Old Testament has just a vast language in it to help us grasp sin. So many different terms, so many different roots. I got Abby to come up here today and write the Hebrew out for me, and, and we've already looked at, uh, let's see, two of these words, hata and teha, to miss and to wonder, and how they were used without any sort of moral context, like we could miss the mark throwing a rock with a sling that was used in the Bible, but then that word is brought into a moral context where we miss the mark of God, okay? And I said that's the most common word. And then we went to this one, which is probably the most second common, and it's to wonder about. It's used without any sort of moral context. People wandered out into the desert and those sort of things. But then God likes to use it in a moral or a sinful context because we wander away from the commands of God, right? Now, the deeper we go into these words, the more graphic it becomes, the more intentional it becomes. Like when we get down to here, uh, this word... Aver, is that right? This word aver that I'll show you in the text means God drew the line in the sand and you keep going. That's what that word means. And there is no, I couldn't find, I don't think, I may have forgotten, I found one in my notes, but right now I can't think of one that I found that it's not used in a moral context. It's always used in a moral or sinful context. God draws the line in the sand and you keep stepping over it time and time again. So in other words, this is a very high-handed word. You know what you're doing is wrong, and you don't care, okay? And this is used time and time again. So we'll finish up this list, and then the next time we meet, which is not next week, I'll be gone. Not the next week, that's VBS. Maybe the next week, I don't know. So this is going to have to do us for three to four weeks before we meet again. But the next time we meet, there are eight more words, and I'll cover all of those in one setting because... I mean, we're not going to be here for months and months and months learning Old Testament words, but I do want you to grasp the fact that God used a vast language to communicate our rebellion against God. Okay, it's not one word. And by the time you work your way through all of these words, you will see that you're absolutely sinful to the core. Now, if I gave you a multiple choice test that said, are you sinful to the core, true or false, you would all mark true. But the more you go through this, the more you realize... Or, or the more you have an understanding of how true that really is. You can see that how many times do I continue to cross over the line or the boundaries that God set, how many times do I cross that line in your life, right? And you'll begin to see, this is the word for crime, often translated rebellion in the text, pesher. Yeah, that's the word. That's just... God refers to his rebellion, but it, it's also translated crime. You commit crimes, which I love. I don't know. I guess some of you might remember R.C. Sproul, uh, dead now. But he always called sin as treason against the Most High God. And when you begin to think of your sin as treason, punishable by death, then you begin to grasp sin. That's how bad sin is. We should know these things without understanding this word because Jesus Christ had to die for our sin. 
And we forget to reflect on that. God did pour out His wrath for us. He just poured it out on His Son. Someone died for you, right? And so we begin to understand sin is a horrible thing. And you don't do this to look at your spouse or your neighbor that you don't get along with and think, my, oh, how sinful. You begin to look at yourself and go, my goodness, how can I really get all aggravated or angry or or condemn someone else? I'm more concerned about my own sin than I am their sin. Does that make sense? Of course, hopefully you're concerned about the sins of others because you love them, not because you want to condemn them in it. So anyway, let's walk through some of this. Uh, Hamartiology is the word because I showed you in the Greek, that word is actually a Greek word, hamartia, where Romans 3.9. So that's where you get that big fancy 25 cent word. Uh, here's the word chata, Judges 20.16. 700 choice men, left-handed, each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's the actual word. But when you bring it into the context of sin, for he adds rebellion to his chata, he clasps his hands among us, he multiplies his words against God. In other words, you miss the mark of God. God set the mark, you miss it. Now, when we get in the New Testament, this is the most common word in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. You're missing the mark of God. And missing the mark of God is punishable by judgment. Okay? You, be, you begin to understand a lot of things. You begin to understand not only how bad sin is, but how worthy of judgment it is, and how, how fearful it is to be under the judgment of God because you know you're guilty. Right? Uh, taha, this was the word for wondering. Exodus 23 4, the passage on the top, talked about a donkey wandering away. If your enemy's ox or his donkey, Taha, wanders away, you shall return it to him without any sort of moral context, right? Um, and then you get into the ones with moral context. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ, right? So we've all gone astray. Um, let me get to the words. All right. Now, this word, sur, supposed to roll your R, means to deviate or to turn aside. This one has context without being a moral issue. Genesis 19.3, he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him, entered his house, and prepared a feast for them. He baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So two people were traveling. A godly man invited them into their home. And so rather than continuing down the road, they stopped, they turned, changed direction, they went into the man's house for supper. So this is this word without any sort of moral implication, right? So the Lord picks it up and he adds moral implication to it. Jeremiah 17, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now, let me give you some context for this. This is when we find ourselves in a particular situation, and as Christians, we know we're supposed to be patient and wait on the Lord. But rather than doing that, we willingly turn aside and put our trust in a man. Let me make a phone call. Let me see if I can reach out to so-and-so and fix this situation, right? 
God says, you're, you're turning aside is what you're doing. Rather than trusting me, you're going, let me pump the brakes with my patience and my prayerfulness, and let me turn aside and see if I can manipulate this situation. Okay? So that's how God's using this into a moral context. You're turning away from me. There's a lot you can say about that. Psalms 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, where do we find that passage at in the New Testament? Romans 3. All right, somebody else tell me what you can gather from verse 3. Everyone. So when we bring this into a moral context, we use this root word, sur, and it means to deviate from the path. How many of us have deviated from the Lord? How many of us have turned away from God in time? We all have. You need to understand that makes you guilty before God and it's worthy of judgment. See, you have to stop thinking about other people and you have to consider yourselves. How many times in a day do we turn away from the Lord? How many times in a week or a month's time do we turn away from trusting in the Lord? Okay. Rob, will you go turn the air down in here a little bit? All right. For the most part, this word group has to do with the moral or spiritual direction someone is taking. People turn away from the right road. So there's not a lot of context where the word is just used without any moral implication. Almost always when you see this word, the Lord's using it in respect to His people turning away from Him. Okay? Um, any questions about that? And I'll wait on Rob before I go on to the next word. How about examples? You don't have to use your own unless you want to. Are examples we do that in life? What do you think? Yeah, so now you're going to bring it in the context of the pulpit, right? (laughs) You know, we're given to pragmatism. We want to make things happen, especially church leadership. They want to make things happen. They want to see churches grow. And so they do particular things that wind up looking like the world to attract the world called pragmatism and you're turning away from the Lord because God says he's the one that will grow his church. It's such a hard line though because we're waiting on the Lord to do something and in turn when he does something he's going to use really the, like, the action of other people. Right. So it's like, you know, you, you sit there and you're like, well, we got to do something. <laughs> right. Because we're not going to just literally sit there and wait. You know, right. Because you can't do that either. Right. It's, it's so hard 
Now, this is not a high-handed one. We'll get to the high-handed ones. By high-handed, I mean, I know it's wrong, but I don't care. This is just, we get tempted anytime we're called to wait upon the Lord and be patient and prayerful. We get tempted to turn aside. It also springs up when we, get, when we become afraid. We get in a particular situation, it looks dark, dismal, not going to go our way, and we become afraid and we turn away from the Lord and try to do something in our own wisdom, our own ability to fix it, right? So it's not quite as high-handed as some of these other ones will be, but yet it's a sin that's punishable by judgment. tighten up and you pull some strings. You know, I've, I've learned so much from Steve McDougall. I can't count it or fathom it, but I have seen him stay longer in faith than anybody else I know to persevere in faith. You know, even family issues, things that I struggle keeping my mouth closed and being prayerful and watchful, I've seen him do it, and I'm just like, man, I'd say something. <laughs> he does not turn away. And it's been so encouraging for me to watch. And I, I think it comes with maturity, learning how to be quiet and still and waiting on the Lord. And not that you just got to grow up. You just have to grow up. But I know everyone who has waited and not turned aside, God always proves himself faithful. And you're not going to get to the end of that and go, oh, you were unfaithful that time. He never does that. All right, let's go to the next word. Uh, how do we pronounce this, Ab? Aver? Okay, so this is me and Abby's attempt to convert it to English. Uh, it means to pass by or to pass over or to cross over. I did have one without a moral context. Genesis thirty-one twenty-one. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose, and he crossed over the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So... No moral context. The Lord says, here's the route. This is the word. Someone crossed over a river on a journey. There's a river there. They crossed over and kept going. Wasn't a bad thing. Wasn't a good thing. Just a thing. So the Lord brings it into moral context. It basically refers to crossing over God's line in the sand or his commands and entering into forbidden areas or forbidden territories. It's high-handed knowingly rebel against what God has said. This is not somebody that wandered on the wrong side of the road. This is not somebody that wandered out into property that's been posted, no trespassing. This is somebody who knows you're not supposed to hunt on that property because it says no trespassing and you ignore the sign and you keep walking into the woods with your gun because you know it's a good place to hunt. It's high-handed, okay? Got a guy in the pharmacy used to come in. He's in prison now, but every year he'd brag about how he had snuck on government property, killed himself a 15-pointer. All the, Every year he'd do this, every year. And I'm just like, buddy, one day you're going to get caught. Well, he got caught with something else. But I just look at him and think, you don't have a brain. When we do things like this, we really don't have a brain. I mean, we know the sign is there. The Lord's put it there, and we just kind of walk around the sign, and we go, it'd be all right, and we do it anyway. Okay, so this is this word. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, it's often translated transgress. 
but it's interesting. A lot of these words that I'm going to show you is translated transgress. That's how limited the English language is. When God was working with Hebrew, it's not limited. So he's got all these words, right? And we translate them to a couple of different words. But I think if you study the words, you get a brighter, better, clearer picture of the word. Does that make sense? Deuteronomy 17, if there's found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing or crossing the property line, so to speak, his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. And if it's told you and you've heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. And if it's true, the thing that is detestable thing that has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness himself shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This one was a huge problem with the Lord. He said, if I said it, that means you all know it. And if you do it anyway, on the basis of two witnesses or three, two or more, you take them out to the edge of the camp. First, the witness who gave testimony or two witnesses or three witnesses, they throw the first rocks and then the entire community throws the rocks and stones them to death. For crossing over the line that God says, I don't, you're not to do this. Now we're beginning to understand the wrath that was poured out on Christ because we've all crossed the line. And so the death that he died, it was literally the death that you deserve and ought to have been a stone to death for. It was a, <laughs> can't put any more emphasis on it than that, right? And of course, this is a passage that we talked a little bit about Sunday because I was quoting Hebrews to you, and I said in the Old Testament, on the eyewitnesses, or the testimony rather, of two or three people you were stoned to death, how much more severe punishment do you think he who has snubbed his nose, so to speak, at the Lord Jesus Christ? All right? It's so much worse than being stoned by a community of people if we turn away from the Christ that God has sent to save us, right? But nonetheless... In the Old Testament, passing over the commands of God, it was met with this sort of judgment. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. You would think nobody would have ever done it, and yet people did it. Right? Uh, Joshua 7.15 It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed or walked over the line, the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Who did that, by the way? Joshua 7. Tough Bible question. Achan. Good. So the Lord said, when you go into Jericho, everything belongs to me. Everything. We're going to burn it all. Okay? First city they walk into. Well, they get to land the waste. Achan went in the war. Achan walks into somebody's tent. What all was there? Silver and gold and an ephod and all these wonderful, beautiful things. He's like, I'm just going to take a little bit. So he takes it back to his tent during the war, buries it under his bed, 
and then goes back to fighting. Well, I mean, the Lord sees everything. So once the war is over, the Lord's like, all right, line them all up. Joshua's like, why? He's like, because somebody sinned against me. I watched him take the things that were dedicated to the Lord. And so they go from tribe to family to man and Achan and his whole family comes out and they burned Achan, his tent, his entire family, burned them all. Because the Lord said, I drew a line in the sand and you ignored it. And so you die. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God of the New Testament. But again, I'll take you right back to Christ because he's the one that was consumed by the wrath of God on our behalf. Numbers 14, Moses says, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when you know it will not succeed? Never, right? Uh, there's so many passages using this word. Some of them are nouns, some of them are verbs. Joshua 23, When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you, and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which He has given you. For Samuel, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He took the spoil for himself. Isaiah 24, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants for they transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Two more. Daniel 9, indeed all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. What do you learn from Daniel 9? Before I go on the last one. Make it too hard. You're making it too hard. You learn it from the first five words. Uh, six, seven. All of Israel. All of Israel has transgressed the law of God. And by the way, that would apply to us as well. All of us has committed this high-handed sin against God, this treason, and are deserving of the judgment of God, the severe judgment of God. Hosea 6 what do you learn from that? First six words. Yeah. And the reason you have is because you're just like Adam. You've done the same thing Adam did. Remember? Don't eat from the tree. It's in the middle of the garden. Day of you, you'll die. Oh, but it looks so good. Well, wait, I drew a line in the sand. You really going to cross that line? Sure am. Going to be my own God. All right. We do it every day, don't we? We do it all the time. You'd think it wouldn't be that difficult because it's funny how y'all draw lines in the sand for your kids every day. Every day. Y'all tell your little kids, don't do this. Don't go here. Don't say this. They're just jumping over lines right and left. But you have to remember, you do that too. 
Now, I'm, you need to punish your kids for jumping over lines. I'm big on that. But you do understand Christ was punished for you every time you jumped over that line as an adult, as in a child. Sin is a serious issue, right? The Lord just doesn't spank us every day. Should, but he doesn't. So all of Israel has transgressed, and like Adam, they all have transgressed the covenant. They have, look, look what the Lord says, you've dealt treacherously with me. Can you imagine that if the Lord said that to you? Of course, every funeral you've ever been to in your life, what do they wind up with? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's like everybody on the planet is evidently going to hear those words, right? This is what the Lord said to the nation of Israel. They have implied all dealt treacherously with me. Eh, that'd be a terrible thing, right? For God to say that. So high-handed, horrible sin. Let's go to the last one. Peshar. Me and Abby argued about the R. Peshar. Abby says there's an R. Peshar. But it's spiritual rebellion. She's probably right. There's crime. I think this is the one I couldn't find a context that wasn't moral or had to do with sin. Uh, Genesis 31, 6, Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban, his father-in-law. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my crime? What is my peshah? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? In other words, what did I ever do that was wrong? Okay? So that's a moral context, but it's not God. But God then will turn and use it against us. Leviticus 16, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of their crimes in regard to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of the meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. So in other words, the Lord says, I've got to clean up everything these people have touched because of their spiritual rebellion has defiled everything in the camp. Okay. Uh, Job 31 have I covered my crimes like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Now, how did Adam try to hide his crime? He blamed it on Eve. He, it on Eve. he also literally hid, right? So Job asked a very profound question. Am I so guilty before God that I've tried to hide my sin before God? I didn't stay in that one long. I was afraid I would fall under deep conviction. <laughs> but you can see, right? We're so foolish we even try to hide things because we hide things from each other, right? We hide things from each other all the time. Nobody's walking in here and, and partly thankfully so, just airing out all their dirty laundry every single week. We'd be like, time out, brother. But we hide things from each other Surely we don't hide things from God. Job asked that question. Am I so arrogant that I've hide, hide, hid my sin from God? Uh, Psalms 32. How blessed is he whose spiritual rebellion or crimes are forgiven, whose sin is covered. And by the way, whose sin is covered, that's a different word. This word is interesting because it's almost always used in conjunction with other words. It's like piles of words. Okay. Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my spiritual rebellion or crimes against God, and you forgave. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all your spiritual rebellion. 
Isn't that awesome? That's how much grace we get. I know, God, that I've stolen everything from you, but I just confess myself as a thief. Psalms 51, I know my rebellion, my sin is ever before me. Psalms 103, all these psalms that we're familiar with usually uses this word. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our spiritual rebellion from us. That's what the gospel does. Isn't that amazing? As high-handed as this one is, the Lord has removed all of this in Christ. That's what's absolutely amazing. You just want to go, you know what? This is way too much forgiveness for me. I'm out. You shouldn't have done all this, right? That's why I tell you all the time, I don't like arrogance when it comes to our salvation. I want us all to have the attitude, if we find ourselves in heaven, to be the most shocked people in existence. You know, we talk about other people all the time. Ain't no way they're going to heaven. They're going to bust hell wide open. We say stuff like that all the time. We shouldn't say. We ought to be shocked if we find ourselves there at the grace of God. That you have literally wiped away all of my spiritual rebellion. Why have you done that? Now, I'm not telling you to doubt the Lord. I'm just warning you to understand the grace that's been given to you. And it's all found in Christ. And it's, it's absolutely amazing to have your garments washed white when you can't get them clean. Uh, Isaiah 53, he was, Christ was pierced through for our spiritual rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. And that's not talking about physical healing. It's talking about spiritual healing. Uh, I think, okay, a couple more. First Kings 8, you forgave the people who have sinned against you and all their rebellion, which they have rebelled against you. This is when it's used as nouns and verbs. And make them objects of compassion. God has made you an object of compassion before those who have taken them captive and that they may have compassion on them. Um, and here's where it's used with other words. Ezekiel 2.3 is an example. Son of man, I'm seeing you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious, different word, people who have rebelled, different word against me. They and their fathers have peshar, spiritual rebellion, crimes against me to this very day. That's it. So that, that word's ugly. Both of these words, super ugly. But it's interesting, when the Lord speaks of His grace, He uses that word a lot. Because he wants to show you that you're guilty of the crimes that you have committed. And through grace, God forgives you. Because the punishment for your crime was poured out on his son. And so that seems to be the biggest word that he uses when he begins to talk about his grace. You're guilty of crimes and found guilty. Tried and found guilty. And God has delivered you. Helpful. bigger picture, understanding your own sin, but more amazed at the grace that you found in Jesus. That's the goal. All right. Comments?